0: Good morning, you have your Bibles, open it to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to take the first four verses this morning. It says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. I'm sorry, I didn't ask you. If you still need a Bible, because we're going to go through a number of verses here this morning. As the author of Hebrews starts out, he starts off by making a declaration. A declaration about Jesus who he is. And it says that in times past, God has spoken to us in various means. And we know, because we have the scriptures, some of those instances how God has spoken to his people, how he has given them manifestations. Moses came and saw a burning bush, and the burning bush spoke to him. God encountered Moses in that way. Jacob had a dream. He slept and he saw the heavens open and this ladder where the angels were ascending and descending to heaven. Through the scriptures as he gave inspiration to Moses and others and the law was given to the nation of Israel, we see that God used those scriptures to speak to the people. And so he he used a variety of things. In Romans chapter 1, we are told that creation itself declares the glory of God. That the invisible things of God are clearly seen by the things that he has created. And so we know even from the Psalms, Psalm 19, that that's the case, that God has declared himself through those things. But you know, there is a limit to that kind of communication. A friend of mine, a, a few years back when texting was starting to become popular, I don't know what we did before we could text and the instant messaging and as that developed you know there became the abbreviations because it's too complicated to write all that out so you can play haha that's funny jk you know just kidding or r-o-f-l roll on floor laughing you know all these kinds of things (laughs) and so i remember messaging this friend of mine and actually it was with my daughter we were kind of teasing her and at the end of it, I just put LOL, you know, laugh out loud. Well, she was messaging a friend of hers. And as she was communicating to her friend, her friend had just gone through a very devastating situation, something that was tragic and a very hard time to go through. She was going through a difficult period of her, her life. And my friend was trying to reach out and just tell her that she's praying for her, she's concerned about her, and she wants her to know that she's just going to be thinking of her. And she thought LOL meant lots of love. And so she ended her message with, I'm thinking about you and praying for you, LOL. And then she found out LOL means laugh out loud. And she was like, oh no, I just told my friend, you know, I'm laughing out loud at her situation when I meant lots of love. And there was this miscommunication, you know, just like, oh, what have I done? You know, you can't read A person's expressions you know in a text message you might be able to put a smiley face you know or you might be able to put a you know a mad face or a frown but you can't get the full intent of what's going on in a conversation through a text message or an instant message you have to communicate and God was able to communicate to such an extent at times past But now, in these last days, and that would encompass what we're experiencing now, in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. And he gives us a declaration of who his son is. He tells us, and it's beautiful words, he says that he is the radiance of God's glory. That means he is... Radiating God's glory. He's not a reflection of God's glory, but from him, God's glory is being emitted. He goes on and he says he is the exact representation of his being. I had read another commentary that said that he is the character stamp of God. God stamped into human flesh. You guys have probably seen it in movies or something where someone melts wax on a letter to seal it and then they put their signet ring and they stamp that ring into the wax so that they can know that this letter actually came from this person. Well, Jesus was the stamp of God in human flesh. And so now God is communicating to us face to face with his person and who jesus is is so important because now we have a communication to god that we didn't have before it's understanding god in a whole new realm now there is a way to actually hear his voice to see him in action to know what god thinks to see how he responds to situations In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It tells us in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen, John tells us in his epistle, the Word of life who we have handled. We were able to handle him. We were able to touch him. We experienced God in the flesh. He spoke to us. He loved us. He sang with us. He communicated to us. And we were able to see him clearly. Colossians tells us that he is the image of the invisible God in chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 9, it comes to a culmination. He says, in Christ is the fullness of God in bodily form. And so we have God with us, now communicating to us. Oh my gosh. Have you ever wanted to know, what does God think about this situation? How does God feel? And understand that we could read about Jesus and get a glimpse of that. Do you remember when Philip spoke to Jesus and he asked Jesus to show us the Father? And Jesus said to him, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Listen to this. The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. The Father is doing His work through me. Now turn to Matthew chapter 6. Because what I want to do is look at a number of areas where God speaks into our lives. And the first area that I thought of is one that I, I think relevant for us. It's in the area of worry. Any of you worry? Just five of you? (laughs) Except some of you twice. Some of you, I worry. God, hear me today. You know, we live in a time of economic crisis. I know many of you have lost your jobs. I've talked to you. I've prayed with you. I know some of you who've lost your homes. I've talked with you. I've prayed with you. I know some who have had to move back in with their parents, who have lost businesses, who are struggling just to make ends meet. I, I know and have experienced that myself, that worry, that concern of how things are going to happen. And Jesus talks about worry in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to start at verse 24. And he starts and he says, No one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so he makes a distinction, God and money. You can't serve them both, okay? So we decide we want to serve God, but we still need money. Jesus needed money. He needed money to pay for the taxes, to pay for the room that they used for the Last Supper, to buy food. They went out and bought food. They needed money. It says that Judas carried the purse, and he was pilfering from it. They had money. We need money. And so he tells us we can't serve them both, and he he brings clarity into this, and he continues. He says, therefore, knowing that you can't serve them both, but you do need money, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Well, yeah, it is. Life is more important than just the needs that we have, right? We, we understand that, but we still need money. We, we still have this concern. We still have to provide for the food, for the clothes. He goes on. Look at the birds of the air, he says in verse 26. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? He wants to bring in a dimension that we're not used to, that of faith. And he knows that we have these needs. And he tells us, don't worry, think about this. The birds. They don't go out and farm, plant things, put them in the storeroom, harvest them. But God takes care of them. I heard that a sparrow has to eat seven times its weight a day. Sounds like fun. if you don't get bigger. But God takes care of him. And he says, aren't you more valuable? And it's rhetorical. It's obvious. Yeah, you are. And if God takes care of the birds and you're more valuable than they, isn't he going to take care of you? And worrying, is that going to add length to your life? Is that going to help you in any way? Is that going to change your circumstances? No, but believing and trusting in the one who cares for the birds and that he will care for you, that will help. Now, I know if you're like me, you think, but you don't understand our circumstances, Lord. You, you don't understand. I don't think we understand. Even in our circumstances right now, we are living, the majority of us, and I would venture to say just about everyone in this room, is living better than the majority of the people in this world. And at the time of Christ, poverty was rampant, slavery was the norm, and oppression was common. So it's not like he's talking from a place of affluence, It's not like he's talking from, yeah, living in his palace. In fact, Jesus didn't have a home. Remember, he said the birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was homeless. But God provided for him, and he trusted in his heavenly Father like he's asking us to. And he's asking us to understand something that God takes care of his creation, and you are more important. And now, go back to our point here. This is not just a man telling us not to worry. This is God telling us that I will care for you. I care for you more than the birds. And I take care of them. I am going to take care of you. Now, we would like to dictate how that care looks like. Wouldn't we? I I would love to tell the Lord what kind of car I should drive. What kind of clothes I can wear. What kind of house I should live in. You know, as I do some dog training, I go to some affluent homes, and I see these homes, and I'm like, Lord, yes, you know, this would be nice, you know, please. But I can't serve God and serve money. And if I live for this material, I will not be living for the spiritual. And if my eyes are on the things of this world, they will not be in the things of heaven, Colossians 3 tells us. And so I need to set my affections on the things above. And I have to have faith in God who cares for the birds and will also care for me. And unless I trust in him, and unless I'm connected to him, I will not experience a life of faith. You see, nothing about faith is secure. That's why it's called faith. The idea that, you know, you just live a faith-filled life. What does faith mean? It's trusting what we don't know. It's the unknown. It's stepping into those areas that we don't know. It's the evidence of things hoped for. the substance of what we don't see. And so faith is a scary thing, but it is real. And he says, there is evidence of it all around you. Look at the birds. I take care of them. You think I can't take care of you. And unless we are connected to this faith and trust and this relationship with God, we won't experience His blessing, His provision. But if we are, we will experience the miraculous. You ever wonder, how did Jesus do these things? His disciples who followed Him, how did they lay hands on people, have them healed, see God appear to them in visions, do miraculous things? They believed. They trusted. They have a life of faith. And if we would have the same thing, we wouldn't worry. Why? Because we are now experiencing God. My children, when they were small, they used to love and climb up on the bunk bed and jump off into my arms. Why? Because they knew I was going to catch them. Dad's here. Sometimes he wouldn't even ask. I'd just turn around and boom, there they are in the air, you know. Whoa, you know, just like. But they had confidence in this relationship, and so they trusted. And the same thing is true with our relationship with God. If we have confidence because we have this experience with Him we will be able to trust Him when we don't see it. And you might not live in the house that you want to, and you might lose that job that you like, and you might lose that home, and you might have to move to some other place. I don't know what the circumstances, but you will still be connected to God who has hold of you. And you will be able to trust in Him. And it's real. It's not just make-believe. It's not just religion. It's God who takes care of the birds, He will take care of you. He goes on in verse 28 and he says, Why do you worry about clothes? This is specifically for the women. No, it's not. (laughs) See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire... Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans, those who don't believe in God, run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And so he gives another illustration. He talks about Solomon in all his glory. Solomon was the greatest king of Israel. He built the temple that was filled with gold. He had thousands of horses. People came from countries all over the world just to see the splendor that was a part of his kingdom. And Jesus says, a single flower is arrayed better than all the things that he had. And you go outside and you see a field full of flowers, God's splendor, God's beauty, God's workmanship, his handiwork. And he says, if these things are so glorious and they are going to wither and be thrown away, don't you think I have more interest in you than flowers that are discarded? Oh, you of little faith, why don't you see who I am, what I am doing? Now remember, this is God talking to us right now. And I hope he's talking to you in your situation, whatever it is. If you've lost a job, if you're dealing with financial hardship, physical hardship, I hope you can hear the voice of God from Jesus saying, Oh, you of little faith. I take care of the fields. I will take care of you. I will. And so, how do we connect to this faith? How do we get to this understanding? He tells us in the next verse... Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you, the things that you need. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow worries about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. Amen for that. So Jesus tells us, if you want to know how to be connected, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Wait, I I need to go out. I need to get the job. I need to take care of this. Seek first the kingdom of God. Recognize that I am here. Recognize that I am with you. Recognize that I care for the birds. I care for the flowers. I care for you. Recognize that and seek me first, my kingdom. Remember in the prayer that Jesus said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I need to be connected to that kingdom. It is where I dwell. I am a member of God's kingdom. I need to recognize that. I need to seek it first and being right with God. And if I do that, watch what God does. Watch what he does to your life when you trust him and you live a life of faith. A life of faith is not safe. It is scary and it is exhilarating. And it connects us to God. Like we've never experienced before. We will experience if we have faith and trust in the Lord. And so we are to seek Him. And not just what we want for ourselves. But trust Him for what we need that he will take care of us. It doesn't mean you shouldn't go out and look for a job. You should. But you should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust in him to take care of you, that he has hold of your life and live a life that is connected to God, a life of faith. Now, I want to look at another area in just dealing with that. But first, I want to – I better hurry – Jesus said in Luke 12, 4, and 7, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. Now, let's stop there. Does that catch anybody's attention? Don't be afraid of those who can kill you. That's all they can do. That seems like a lot to me. (laughs) But he goes further and explains it. He says, but I will show you whom you should fear, fear him who is after the killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell yes i tell you feel, fear him in other words when your body is done that's it but there's more that can be done that's all they can do is deal with your body and he's saying there's a lot more you need to worry about again there is a kingdom that you need to be aware of there is a life that goes past your physical life that you need to be understanding of and you need to fear god more than you fear the circumstances here that's his point. And before you think, oh, well, that's mean. I've got to be afraid of God because he's going to kill me too or he's going to throw me in hell. He goes on to give you uh, an understanding. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Once again, he says, I care about you. I really do. Don't fear the temporary, be mindful of the eternal and understand that I count your hair every moment of every day that you are alive. I am so involved with you, you can't imagine. Psalm 139, 17, it says, How precious to me or towards me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would be outnumbering the grains of sand. You ever pick up a handful of sand? Just a handful. Try and count the grains that are in one hand. Could you do it? It'd make you nuts. You'd have to, you know, forget it. Imagine a bucket full. How do you count the grains of sand in a bucket? A wheelbarrow. A dump truck. All the sands on all the beaches in the world. God says, I think about you more. This is God speaking into our worry, saying you have no idea how much I think about you. And if sparrows are sold for two cents, how much more value are you? And so I I pray that as God speaks in this area of worry, that it would bring comfort to us and it would help us to turn our eyes and seek first the kingdom of heaven that we wouldn't be worried about just the body and the temporary but we would have understanding of the eternal and about God now let's look at the, another area let's look at the area of our, our our sin is anyone warm in here Keith can you turn on the air Would be greatly appreciated Turn to John chapter 8 And I'm going to have to go through this a little bit quicker This is one of my favorite stories in the Gospels John chapter 8, starting at verse 2, it says, At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said... Pick up on this. They made her stand before the group. In other words, she was probably trying not to, and they were forcing her to stand in the group. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, the law of Moses commanded us, stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin... Go now and leave your life of sin. There are so many aspects to this this story that are just powerful. You know, what are the odds that Jesus is going to be in the temple and nearby there's just going to happen to be a woman committing adultery that's going to be caught and been able to be brought before Jesus? Well, it says they did this in order to trap them. And we see a few things puzzling. One of them is that coincidence. The other is, where's the guy? As far as I know, it still takes two to commit adultery, not just one. And I smell a setup. I I smell a setup from those who are now presenting this woman before Jesus. And now think about this. Think about this woman who is being set up and who is setting her up. It is the religious leaders, those who are supposed to help you get to God, are the ones who are setting you up so that they can make an accusation about Jesus. Imagine having that knowledge as well, to know that maybe even the one that she was committing adultery with was part of this group. And to find out you've been set up, and now you're brought before this holy man, naked, And you're forced to stand there in public with your sin declared before everybody. Imagine the most shameful thing that you have ever done. And the regret and the remorse and the shame that you feel of that. And it wouldn't compare to what's happening to this woman right here who's being publicly humiliated by the religious leaders brought before Jesus. And you can imagine when they say to to Jesus, you know, the law of Moses says that we are to stone her to death as she's there in her shame standing there thinking, I am going to die in this shame. My life is going to end in the worst possible way. Imagine the horror that would fill her soul. The humility. And as they are pushing and holding her into this crowd, and they're pressing on Jesus, what do we do? We're supposed to kill her. What do you say? What do you say? And he's silent, says nothing. Which is good advice to take sometime. And finally, after... Stopping to write on the ground, and I know we all want to know what he wrote. But he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then continues to write on the ground. And one by one they leave. Until finally she is standing there alone with Jesus. And he stands up and he says, Is anyone going to condemn you? Where are they? Is anyone here? And she says, no. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now remember, this is God stamped in human flesh. A woman who was caught in adultery is standing before him. And he says, I don't condemn you. Go and leave this life of sin. I'm going to give you a second chance. Does anyone here need a second chance? Does anyone here feel like the weight of sin on their life is stopping them? I can't go to God. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the things I think. You don't know the behavior that's a part of my life. You don't know the problems, the things that are habits, the addictions I have. Well, I know that the safest place for you is at the feet of Jesus. And isn't it funny? We, we've got it so backwards. We have in, this mind, in our minds that, you know, God is out to get us and God is so judgmental and we're the ones who are so, you know, freeing and so forgiving. We're the ones who are so... And it's so the opposite. People are the ones who are condemning and God is the one who is not condemning. And whenever you find yourself condemning someone, you are not being like God. Understand that. You are not being like him if you are in that position of bringing condemnation to other people. Jesus said in John 3, 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus' job wasn't to bring condemnation. It was to bring salvation. Now understand, we are already in condemnation. That's what it continues on, and it says... Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. We all stand like this woman, condemned before God. We all have the shame of our lives that we know about and that God knows about. We are already condemned. How do you get rid of the condemnation? You go before the son of God. And he is willing to forgive. How do you think this would change our society if people knew that they could be forgiven if they would come before Jesus? And how many people think, I can't go to church because they're going to condemn me because we have not represented God accurately? You see, people are already condemned. What they need is forgiveness. Jesus didn't come to judge and condemn the world. They are already judged. We are already condemned. We need salvation, and Jesus offers salvation. And so, when you think of, how, how does God deal with someone who is in sin? Here you go. Here's an example of how Jesus dealt with someone's sin. How do you deal with someone's sin? Especially if it's your husband or wife, children, family members who have done you wrong. Boy, we want to stand in the mirror in front of everyone. We want to bring, hey, everyone, come here, come here. You know what they did to me? Let me tell you. Here, let me show you. Look at, I got the email right here. Do you see what they said? Can you believe it? And we want to bring them out and we want to hold them accountable for those sins and we start condemning. We are not like God in that moment. Jesus would say to us, if you're without sin, go for it. And that should be enough to make us shrink back. And So how does God deal with our shame? He doesn't condemn us. In fact, that is where you are safe. And so whatever is burdening your life, you need to go before Jesus. And it's interesting because we would think that, or I've heard and had this supposition that God is mad at us because of our sin. And we don't see Jesus being angry here. In fact, the areas where we would expect Jesus to be angry, we don't see him angry. But God does get angry. It's just not in the areas that we are aware of. And real quickly, we want to close with this. You know, you would think that Jesus might be angry at the cross when they were crucifying him, when they were accusing him falsely, when they were beating him, when they nailed him to the cross. But we don't see that. Actually, we see him say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But we do see Jesus get angry. We see God get angry. And it takes place in Mark chapter 11, as well as in the other gospels, starting at verse 15, Says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the table of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, I think that's funny. John's gospel tells us that he actually made a whip and he drove them out. He's turning tables. He's just causing this mayhem, throwing them out. And then it says, and then he taught. Can you imagine that? You know, kicking the chest. Okay, open your Bibles to Mark. (laughs) And then he taught them. But you see, he was teaching them. He was showing them the heart of God in this situation. And as he began to teach them... Lost my place. As he taught them, it is written, he said, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now what he's doing is he's quoting Isaiah here. And Isaiah talks about the Lord developing the temple so that those who were eunuchs and those who were foreigners could come and have a place where they could connect to the living God. Those who were outcast, the foreigners, were to be able to come into the temple and to be able to pray and talk to God. Solomon, when he dedicated the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, we don't have time to go through it right now, but his prayer was, Lord, when the foreigner comes to this, your house, hear and answer his prayer so that he might know that you are God. The foreigner, the outcast, the one who does not belong to your people, I want them to come here and see you so that they would know who you are. That was the heart of God, and what had they done? They had made it a place of merchandise. You want to come worship, you've got to pay the temple coins, and there's going to be you know a, a change, an exchange for money. You know if you go to Europe, you exchange if you give them a hundred bucks, they give you 50 pounds. Man it's a ripoff. You lose half of the money. Just by going over there, well, the same thing was happening. They would come to the temple, and they'd give them their money, and they would give them less the equivalent of the temple coins. It was a racket. They were making money on them, and that infuriated God. Because the people who were supposed to be a light to the world and representing God were now putting obstacles in front of people. And know this, if we put obstacles in front of people, God is not happy. You want to see God mad, you hinder someone from coming to Him. And you will see the displeasure of God. Now the reverse I believe is true and we'll end on this. If God is displeased when people hinder those coming to Him, what do you think happens when we do bring people to Him? I think we will experience God's pleasure as never before. I know the opportunities I have had to talk with someone and to lead someone to faith in Christ have been the most exhilarating things in my life. There's a rush over my senses. There's an awareness. There's a connection with God that cannot be explained. It is powerful. Because the pleasure of God is that people would come to know Him him. And if we get to be a part of that, God is well pleased. And that's what we desire, to please God. And and so, I hope you will understand that God, through Jesus, has spoken into our areas of worry, saying, trust me, I think about you more than you know. He's spoken to us and about our sins, and he says, come to me. I will not condemn you, but I will give you life. And he's helped us to see what really upsets him is hindering people that come to him. But if we will bring people to him, he will be pleased and we will enjoy his blessing. Let's pray. Lord, how do I explain who you are and share... uh, even a a fraction of how you have spoken and how you have dealt with humanity, that, that we are able to hear your words, that you have given us an accurate and clear representation of who you are, and we just looked at a couple of areas, Lord, and there's so much more that we can enjoy and understand about who you are. Father, may we devour the things that you've said, and Jesus, may we take your words and hear them and understand that it is our Father in Heaven speaking. May they set us free from worry. May they set us free from the the condemnation of our sin. And may they guard our hearts against pride and any kind of religiosity that would exalt ourselves over others. Father, have your way with us. Lord, enrich our lives with your presence and the knowledge of who you are. May we have faith, may we believe, and may we be examples to those around us because they see you at work within us. Might you do the miraculous through us, Lord. I pray even as Solomon did, answer our prayers so that people would know that you are our God. Heal, Lord, that little baby in the hospital. Touch those who are dealing with infirmities, Lord. Give restoration to their health. Lord, provide how you see best for the needs that we have. And may we recognize and be grateful. May we live lives of unwavering faith because we know that if you care for the sparrow, if you care for the flowers of the field, you will care for us. That you will not condemn us And your desire is to bring all to the knowledge of your son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.